Well, good morning, Hope Church. How we doing? Good. It's so good to see everyone here today because it's Potluck Sunday, people. Yeah, yeah. Finally, right? We've been waiting for this for what? Over a year, right? I think the last one was March. Was it in March? Wow. Been a while, but I'm glad to see everybody here today. You know, this past week, I was thinking a little bit and kind of pondering how my brain works. Now, don't be afraid, okay? I'll kind of let you inside here a little bit. But I find that there's things locked inside from long, long, long ago. Why they're there, I don't know. Why they bubble up to the surface from time to time, that's an even more curious question. I hope I'm not the only one. Anybody have weird things happen to them, like you remember something? This week, this is what bubbled up into my brain. It's a song. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I mean, where does that come from? Now you guys are getting scared, right? He's lost his mind. But seriously, that is what kind of bubbled up this week for some weird reason. But I started thinking about that, and, and really what this song serves as a purpose is a reminder, right? It helps us to remember what it is we know about Columbus. And we know for a fact that Columbus did sail from Spain in 1492. It's a historical fact. What may be less clear is why he sailed from Spain, specifically to the West. Does anybody know why? Money, but yeah. That's exactly right. You're right. Have you ever heard, though, it was said that Columbus sailed that direction to prove that the world was not flat? You ever hear that? Yeah. That's not true. That's not true. The fact is, people of Columbus' time did not believe that the world was flat. If you go back in history, you find references to calculations that the world was actually round, like in 600 B.C. Guys like Pythagoras, that guy that we can thank for the Pythagorean theorem, for you geometry nuts, are there any geometry nuts? Maybe not. But Pythagoras and Aristotle and people like that observed and proved that the earth was, in fact, not flat. It was round. So the people of Columbus' time did not believe that you could actually sail off the edge of the earth. Columbus did, as we noted, however, set out to find these new trade routes to East Asia by sailing west. He sailed west. What Columbus didn't know is that it was a much longer journey than he expected. And there was this huge unexplored landmass in his way. Anybody know what that was? North America, right? My point is this. Regardless of what you believed about Columbus, 
and what people said about Columbus and his motivation for sailing, it doesn't change the facts. The facts remain the same. And the same could be said about Columbus' belief that there was nothing in his way on this westward journey toward Asia. It didn't matter that he believed that he was closer than he thought or that there was nothing in his way. The fact is, it was a long way around and there was this landmass in the way. See, what we believe doesn't change facts. And in no case could that be more evident than with Jesus. Because it really doesn't matter what you think you know about Jesus. It doesn't matter what people say about Jesus. Jesus, friends, is who he is. I find it incredibly interesting what people say about Jesus. A fairly recent study by the Barna Group showed some very eye-opening beliefs about this man, Jesus. Now, most agree that he was a real person who existed. About 92% say, yes, Jesus was a real person who existed in time. Despite the agreement on the historicity of Jesus, that's kind of where the agreement ends. Only slightly half, more than half of adults, only 52% believe that Jesus was actually God. Only 52%. The rest say, ah, he was just a really good religious teacher, right? Like, like uh, Muhammad or Buddha. Unfortunately, when you break out the subset of millennials, it actually gets even worse because less than half, only 48%, believe that Jesus is actually God. And that tells me something. That tells me that we have a lot of work to do with our young people. Incredibly important. Incredibly important. Now, this study goes on to ask if people thought that Jesus lived a sinless life. Perhaps reflective of the belief with regard to Jesus' deity, over half, 52%, believe that Jesus sinned while he was on the earth. And again, we see the millennials leading the pack at 56% saying that Jesus was a sinner, just like everybody else. What I find interesting is that about 60% of Americans say that they've made a commitment to Jesus. And you say, well, that sounds pretty good, right? Until you come to understand that there's still confusion about how you get to heaven. See, of those 60% who have made a commitment to Jesus, only about two-thirds believe that they will go to heaven because of him. You know, there's still this common misperception that you get to heaven because you do good stuff. Sadly, this is very common among those people who identify as being Christians. They say they'll go to heaven, ah, because I've really tried to follow the Ten Commandments. Or, you know, they'll say that they're basically a good person, right? I'm good. I've never done anything that bad. You know, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Yeah, 
it seems like Hitler's the benchmark, right? If you're better than Hitler, you're going to heaven. It's a pretty low bar, right? Or they believe they'll go to heaven because God loves all people, right? He loves all people, and a God like that would never allow anyone to perish. See, friends, the world is still confused about who Jesus is. And they're still confused about what he did. And nothing, nothing in this world could be more important, friends. This is critical. A correct understanding of who Jesus is, not who we think he is or who people say he is, who Jesus truly is, is going to determine how we live our lives and where we will spend eternity. This is critical. So how do we best determine who this Jesus is? Yeah, that's a good one. And that's the way we're going. Because you sure don't ask someone, right? You sure don't ask someone and take their opinion as being a fact. You can't do that. We need to look at the definitive and accurate historical source. And as you said, it is the Bible, right? It is the Word of God. We need to look and see what it says about this man called Jesus. The Bible, right, remember, is a wealth of information. If you read it, you got to read the Word. And you know what? You want to know who Jesus is? Read the Bible. But start with the book of John. You've heard me say this before. If you've never read the Bible, don't try to read this book like a regular book because it's not a regular book. Don't start at Genesis and try to work your way through Revelation because you get lost in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus, right? Start with the book of John because John, John is going to show you exactly who Jesus is. From the opening verses of 1 John where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And John is making it clear here that Jesus, Jesus is the Creator he created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of all things. Now, I know that somebody's going to say, hang on a second. Wait, 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 wait. I read Genesis 1, and it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? And you're right. That kind of doesn't make sense. Unless, unless Jesus is God, then it makes sense. And friends, he is God. John goes on to say, later on in that chapter, the word that is Jesus, that is God himself, the creator, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So God came down and he lived among us in this man, Jesus. And as you read on in John, Jesus himself shows us 
by his miracles. And he tells us words from his own mouth who he is. And he says things like, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when you hear things like that, you may think, wow, that's really pretty bigoted, right? That's, that's really super narrow-minded. When you hear someone say that, you think, that's arrogant. And you know you'd be right unless, unless he is who he says he is. And friends, he is God. That's why John wrote this book. That's why he wrote this book, so that we would know. He tells us at the end of John chapter 20, he wrote this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, John wants us to know who Jesus really is. I mean, can we trust this John guy? I mean, what does he know, right? Well, guess what? He does know. He walked with Jesus for three years. He witnessed the miracles. He saw with his own eyes the risen Christ. He was an eyewitness to everything he wrote in that book. All the Gospels, along with the rest of the Bible, was written so that we would know. Now, another eyewitness to the risen Christ, who just happened to write the book that we're studying currently, is this man named Paul. And as we continue in our series of messages on the book of Colossians, Paul is going to make clear a number of things about Jesus. And what we're going to find is that he agrees with everything that John has written and everything that Jesus has said. The message, friends, about Jesus is consistent throughout the Bible. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, he gives us one of the most clear and concise truths of the doctrine of Christ that we find anywhere in the Bible. It is so important to have a correct understanding of Christology, in other words, who Jesus is, because remember, what we think about Jesus and what people say about Jesus does not change who he is or what he's done. So let's spend a little time this morning looking at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23. It's just eight verses. I promise I'll be done by 1, 130. Yeah, I'm glad you giggled there. Because we got food waiting, right? So get at it. Get at it, preacher. But we're going to look at these eight verses. And in these eight verses here, this is really important because Paul is meditating on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's reminding the Colossians. And he's reminding us, right? Remember, we need reminders. Like that little song. We need reminders. 
So we're clear in our minds what we know about Jesus and who he is. And what we'll find is that this is really kind of a reader's digest of John's gospel. And actually, most scholars believe that this was a hymn or a poem that was, that was sung in the church that described what the Christians of the time believed about Jesus. In this passage, Paul makes three points, three points about who Jesus is. The first is this. Jesus is Lord of creation. He is Lord of creation. He writes beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And this word that's translated image here, it's the Greek word icon. And this Greek word icon expresses so much more than just like a, a likeness or a mirror image. No, what it, what it refers to is, is quite literally the manifestation. The manifestation. God is fully revealed and fully manifested in Jesus. If Paul had, used, had meant you know, a simple likeness or you know, he kind of looks like God, he'd have used a much different word. But he uses this much stronger word and he uses it purposefully because he knows that Jesus is God, just as God the Father is God, right? We believe in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three gods in one. We could do a whole sermon series on that. Maybe we will sometime. And then we see Paul refer to Jesus as the firstborn. And again, here we're kind of shortchanged by this translation of the original Greek because when, when you say firstborn, right, it gives the, the, the impression that, that Jesus was created, right? It gives the impression that, that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. And certainly, neither of those things is true. The original Greek word is the word prototokos. And that word prototokos describes either a priority in time or a supremacy in rank. And quite honestly, Paul probably had both of those ideas in mind here. Remember, Jesus pre-existed all things created. Right? He pre-existed all things created. And we know that time was created. He pre-existed time. That succession of moments that we understand as time. There was a period when that did not exist. That just blows your mind, doesn't it? We can't understand that, but it's true. But Jesus created all things. And because he created all things, he is preeminent over all things. He reigns supreme. And there's no doubt that he is the Lord over all creation because, as Paul says... At the beginning of verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Right? Jesus, Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. It was Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. Remember what John told us? Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And that includes, as Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 16, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In verse 17, Paul writes this, and he is before all things. And here again, Paul is emphasizing the eternality of Jesus, meaning Jesus has always existed. And Paul makes this point again, really to refute some false teachings that were going through the church of Colossae, that Jesus was created. Jesus was a created being. Not true. And here's, here's the argument that, that Paul's implying here. Again, we know that all creation exists in time. The succession of moments that we just talked about. We also know that all creation had a beginning. It had a commencement. It started somewhere. And science proves this, to be honest with you. So there was an infinite dura duration during which nothing existed. Nothing existed, including time. So whatever existed prior to creation is no part of creation. It is separate from creation. It was not created. And that entity which existed prior to creation and is in fact the creator, that entity has to be God. Therefore, because of that, Paul is saying Jesus is truly God. Not only did he pre-exist creation and, and create all things, right? Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 17, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus didn't just create the heavens and the earth and then walk away. No, no. He is the one who sustains all things. He's got the whole world in his hand. Ooh, there's another song that is a reminder, right? And that song is theologically correct because he does hold the whole world in his hand. Jesus is actively holding up and sustaining all creation. Hebrews 1 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. And this happens to be that same idea of an image, right? The manifestation of God himself. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. It is Jesus that holds the stars in place. He causes the planets to move. He brings the rains. He holds the seas in place, the rivers within their banks. He causes the harvest. He causes the plants and the trees to grow. Jesus is the God of all creation. Incredibly important point for Paul to make. See, in Colossae, they were living in a culture that was polytheistic, right? Polytheism. Many gods. They had many, many gods. There was a separate god, small g, of course, right? There was a separate god for everything. The god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the water, the god of the uh, agriculture, the god of the stars. But Paul's saying, no. No, Jesus is the one and only God who sustains all of those things. Jesus is the Lord of creation. 
Second point that Paul makes here is Jesus is Lord of redemption. Starting in verse 18, Paul says, And he is the head of the body, the church. And there's several places in the New Testament where Paul and the other writers of the New Testament refer to the church as the body of Christ. But here Paul takes it a little bit further by saying that he is actually the head of the church. Clearly stating that Jesus is the leader of all churches. He's the, church, he's the leader here. He leads this church. Believe me, he does. But Paul's also implying that Jesus is the source of the church, the head of the church, like we might say the head of a river, the source of the river. Jesus is the, the head, the leader, and the source of the church. Paul goes on at the beginning of verse 18 to say, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Some translations say that he might have the supremacy. It's a fitting summary of verses 15 through 18. And then in verse 19, Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I, I hate to keep beating you guys up with the Greek here, but the Greek really helps us to understand exactly what Paul's saying. And this Greek word here that's translated fullness is the Greek word pleroma. Pleroma. And this is a word that, that the Gnostics used to describe the sum total of all divine powers. Remember, the Gnostics, they spread divine power over many gods, right? That's that polytheism that we talked about just a few moments ago. But what Paul does is Paul gathers them all together. He pulls it all in and pulls all the divine powers in together in Christ, saying that Jesus is God. And then Paul gets to the redemption part, saying in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So friends, here's the beauty, man. Jesus is able to reconcile us and make peace by what? By the blood of his cross. It's only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we have peace and that we're reconciled. Jesus is the Lord of redemption. And the last point that Paul makes in the rest of this passage is that Jesus is the Lord of reconciliation. He tells the Colossians, and he's telling us today that we can be reconciled. And then Paul goes on to tell us exactly what that means to be reconciled. Verse 21, And you, meaning us, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And friends, we have to stop here and we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to admit that we are all sinners. We're all sinners and we are separated. We are alienated from God by our sin. But the good news, the good news is in verse 22. 
Because Paul says he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his, by his what? By his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So friends, God's answer to our alienation is reconciliation. And we're reconciled only by the death of Jesus. The death he died on the cross, friends, he died for you. And he died for me. The torture that he endured, his suffering, this cruel death, that was all for us so that we would be reconciled to our creator. Found pure and blameless in the sight of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Nothing more. Nothing more. Paul finishes this thought in verse 23 where he writes, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And one more Greek phrase for you guys here, because it's important. The Greek phrase that's translated, if indeed, is absolutely better translated, since you will. See, there was really no question in Paul's mind. Well, if you continue, no, since you will. Paul fully expected the Colossians to continue in the faith. Paul's point here is that those who are truly reconciled will truly persevere and continue in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, it's the gospel that changes us, right? It's the gospel that transforms us. We can't stay the same when we're exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what it did to Paul and Epaphras. It changed the way they lived. They couldn't stop sharing the gospel. They persevered. Knowing, knowing that it wasn't their godly conduct that saved them. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You know, the Gnostics, right, and the Jewish influencers that were trying to undermine the gospel. Remember we talked about this last week? By convincing the Colossians that there was something more that they needed, right? Some higher knowledge or Jesus plus something, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus works. No, Paul makes it clear. This is heresy. This is nonsense. And John and Peter and the rest of the writers of the New and the Old Testament, they all agree Christ reigns supreme and Christ is sufficient. And as our culture tries to convince us that, you know, Jesus was just this really good guy, right? Really good teacher. Had some great ideas about love and, you know, loving others and stuff like that. Paul is reminding us here who Jesus really is. See, it doesn't matter what you think about Jesus. Jesus is who he is, regardless of what people say about him. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of redemption. And he is the Lord of reconciliation. It is through his shed blood that we have forgiveness and peace and a hope for eternity. 
You want that peace? You want that forgiveness? You want that hope? Give your life to Christ. Give your life to him. He's standing here today, arms wide open. 2 Peter 3 reminds us, God doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to come to believe in Jesus Christ, who he really is. He, friends, is God and the Savior of the world. I pray that you would give your life to Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your Son, for Jesus, who is truly God. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the God of all. He is our Savior, and He is our only hope. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that, that doesn't know you, Lord, I just pray that you would pour your Spirit out and, and move, in their, move in their hearts and, and move them towards you. And if you have given your life to Christ, recommit that life today. Recommit that life today. Because Jesus is our hope. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation we have. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.